All right, let's open our Bibles to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 50 and verse 22. It says, So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. As we open up in Genesis chapter 50, obviously we're starting a series in Genesis, and I jumped right to the end. And mainly that's just because I want to begin with the end in mind. In fact, what I'd like to do today, as we often do in our series, is I'm not going to focus on a small section of Scripture, but I want to do kind of an overview of the book of Genesis and say what is the big picture of the book of Genesis. That will help us as we go through the smaller sections of it to see where we're headed. Last night I typed this little phrase into Google. I typed, trace my family tree. 94,400,000 pages came up on Google. Now it took a little time, but no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Can you believe that? 94,400,000 internet pages. You know, that seems to be a common thing that a lot of people are even sending in their DNA now to find out where they're from. And uh, you you know what? The most important part of your family tree is found right here in the book of Genesis. It it really is because the biggest impact to, to the cultures and the biggest impact on us as individuals and us as humanity, all those changes were made all the way back in the chapters of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis means the beginning. We're looking at the book of beginnings. And you know what? Every major doctrine starts in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we have the beginning of the world in which we live. We have the beginning of mankind. We have the beginning of marriage. We have the beginning of, of child rearing. We have the beginnings of, unfortunately, sin. And, and we also have the beginnings of sacrifice. We have the beginnings of violence and murder. And we also have the beginnings of, of forgiveness and grace. And everything that we experience in life really was already in existence back in the beginning. In studying this book, we learn where we're from, and we also get a hint of where we're headed. And we, and we learn about our nature. Is mankind basically good, or are we basically sinful? And we learn about the struggles that we have, and the, our tendency to wander away from God. And, and we learn about the nature of temptation, as we see Adam and Eve experience it in the garden. And we see Joseph experience it with Potiphar's wife. And, and we, we just see so many things within this book of the beginnings that help us in our life as we get a handle on the principles that we find within the book. It's the beginning of the big story that we find traced all the way through the Bible, of this promise of this Redeemer that will come and deliver mankind. We see the hopeless state of mankind as we go through it as well. Well, as we begin with the end, what did we find? At the very end of the book of Genesis, we find Joseph. Joseph has been in Egypt. If you remember, he got sold into slavery by his brothers, so there's betrayal. Betrayal also starts in Genesis. As uh, Joseph is sold by his brothers into Egypt, and he's sold into the slave market, and then Joseph, everything that he touches seems to prosper. And so he gets sold to a man named Potiphar, and he becomes Potiphar's servant, and he prospers, and it ends up that Potiphar leaves his whole household and basically under the care of Joseph other than what he eats on his table at night. And then, because of an incident with Potiphar's wife and her false accusations against Joseph, he finds himself in prison. And we don't see him there very long, and he rises to the top of that, and he's helping the prison guards, and he's, he's helping people that are in the prison. 
and builds a trust with the guards that are there. And then he finally gets delivered out of prison and right to the Pharaoh, and he ends up second in command of all of Egypt. And he saves Egypt and the surrounding world from a severe famine. Well, when we get to the very end of the book of Genesis, we find Joseph is about to die. And he's got his family, his kids and his grandkids and and great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids and all that's around him. And he says this one peculiar thing. Remember, they're in Egypt, far away from the promised land that was given to their father Abraham. And Joseph says, someday God is going to come and visit you in this place and he's going to take you home. When he takes you home, take me with you. And so they had him embalmed and put in a coffin in Egypt so that when they leave Egypt, and it's going to be 430 years later, but when they leave, they're going to take the bones of Joseph and they're going to take them with them back to the promised land. You see, he's, it is death. At the end of the book of Genesis, he's still looking forward. And the book of Genesis really lays the foundation for the book of Exodus and the rest of Moses' writings in the Pentateuch as they will be delivered from Egypt and finally eventually taken into the promised land up in the days of Joshua. But you see, they're already looking forward. Joseph, at his death, is still looking forward. That's what Genesis does. Genesis starts with us back in the Garden of Eden and the creation of God, and it ends It ends with us looking forward to this promised land. Well, in order to get to that point, there's a lot of things that got to happen. As we look through the book of Genesis, there's about four different dispensations that take place within the book. Now, the word dispensation, it comes from the Greek word oikonomos, oikos meaning house, and namas meaning rule. So in other words, it's the rules of the house. Or if you think about it as a stewardship, God gives us certain commands and we're responsible to fulfill those commands. So it's a stewardship of what we're responsible for underneath the revelation of God. Well, there's about four different dispensations or stewardships that we see happen in the book of Genesis. The first one that we see is a dispensation of innocence. In other words, how does God's house work? In, in this time period, it's a dispensation of innocence. Genesis starts off with that phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It unfolds that for us on each day, what God created, and then on the last day that he rests. But to put it in a nutshell, what's happening is God's creating the world that we're going to live in. We're the last thing made and the only thing made in the image of God. And so he makes this entire world. And furnishes it with all the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds and everything else. And then lastly, he makes us and puts us in it. And he places us in this world and then tells us that we would exercise dominion over this world. Now, when Adam and Eve are first put in the garden, they're in a stage of innocence. Most theologians, I think, label it this way. They're in a time of unconfirmed holiness. Right, Because you, you, you struggle on whether to call them holy or not because you know they're going to sin, they're going to fall. This innocence isn't going to last real long. But at the same time, they still haven't sinned. They haven't done anything wrong. They are, they are still innocent. And so most people look at it and say, look, it's a, they have a holiness about them, a righteousness about them, but it's an untested righteousness. It's not until they face the temptation in the garden that their innocence is tested, and then at that point, they fail. But that's one of the things that we see with these dispensations. Dispensation always includes these things. It includes a revelation from God as to what we're responsible for in that dispensation. And then unfortunately, it also tends to include a failure to meet that qualification and then a judgment that ensues. And so as we look at at that section there, what do we find? We find Adam and Eve in the garden and they're innocent. When God got done with all the creation, he said it is very good. 
It was very good. And then, as we know, what is required of them? Their responsibility is to, to not eat the fruit from the tree of the garden, and it's to exercise dominion over the garden, over all of God's creation. So you see, they have a responsibility to fulfill, and we'll get a little bit more into that um, in the future here. So there's innocence. They start out in innocence, but they don't stay in innocence. They end up eating the fruit, falling out of the grace of God, and plunging themselves into sin. The next dispensation that we see, they're not innocent anymore, so we can't call them that. But from what we can tell, it looks like they're governed by conscience. By their conscience, that voice within you that tells you what's right and what's wrong, that when you start to do something that's wrong, you feel like, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Well, that's how it seems to be after that, because if you find like Cain and Abel, where they both bring a sacrifice to God, and Abel's is accepted and Cain's isn't, God just tells Cain, look, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? You know you'll be accepted. Just, Just do what is right. But there's no external restraint on Cain. It's just himself, from within himself, from within his conscience, he's supposed to do what's right. And that's what, as we look through that section, what are they supposed to do? Well, in all sections, they're supposed to trust God, and that would be seen by doing what's right, by bringing the acceptable sacrifice, by worshiping God with a sincere heart, by being kind toward other people, opposite of rising up against your own brother and killing him. But they fail in that. Then after conscience, because conscience fails, what God does is he brings in human government. Human government. Now this one is, is after the flood. After the flood, when God has Noah get off the boat, God tells Noah this. He says, when a man sheds a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, the very first institution of human government was in the form of capital punishment. He says, if somebody takes somebody else's life unlawfully, then mankind needs to exercise authority and put that person to death. Because he's killed somebody that's made in the image of God, the price for that needs to be severe. The price for that is his own life. You see, before this time, we didn't see that. In fact, when Cain kills his brother Abel, he doesn't get put to death. In fact, he argues with God. When God confronts Cain, Cain says, wherever I go, they're going to kill me for killing my brother. And God says, then I'm going to mark you for a protection. That nobody is, nobody's to kill Cain. And you think, now wait a minute, he killed his brother. He shed innocent blood. Why doesn't he die? Well, it was, that was before the time of capital punishment. That was before human government. And so he, didn't, he wasn't put to death at that time. But when they get off the ark, God says, no more of this. From now on, if a man sheds a man's blood by man, collectively his blood will be shed. And he institutes capital punishment. You see, before there was no external restraint. The only restraint on us was internal from our conscience. If you know to do right, do it. But now God says there's going to be external restraint. Human government, mankind will restrain one another in this dispensation. And then finally, there's the dispensation of promise. Now, if you go on through the rest of the Bible, you'll cut, cut a couple, three more. But uh, this one is the dispensation of promise which is given to Abraham. And this is when God comes to Abraham in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. In fact, let's turn there. In chapter 12, in the first three verses, it says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and, and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, 
so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's when that new dispensation kicks in, this new revelation to Abraham. He says, come and follow me. I'm going to give you a place. I'm going to multiply your family. Your family is going to become a nation. And at this time, his family is him and Sarah, the nephew Lot, and his dad. And he's actually supposed to leave his dad's house, but he takes his dad with him and Lot with him. And so it's basically, if you look at his immediate family, it's just him and Sarah. But God says, I promise I'm going to multiply your family. I'm going to turn you into a nation. And whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. And so those are the different dispensations that we see within the book of Genesis. As we continue to look through these dispensations, we're going to see a change in responsibilities, and we're going to see the judgments that ensue, and then also the deliverance that comes with those things. And so the second thing that we see in this dispensation is the responsibilities. What is the responsibility of the people in each dispensation? Well, in one sense, it's all the same. And that is that the responsibility in every dispensation is to trust God. It's always faith. Even in the Old Testament, same as the New Testament, it always boils down to faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, when we were looking at faith and the requirements of faith, he looked back and he used all Old Testament examples of people that walked in faith. And that's what it takes to please God. How do I know that I'm in with God, that I'm walking with God? I have to be walking by faith. Well, as we look back through those different dispensations then, what did faith mean for Adam and Eve? It meant don't eat the, tr- eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like God told you not to. It meant to take care and, and exercise dominion over the garden and over the world that God put under their control. Now, what about in, what about in conscience? In the time of conscience, how would you exercise faith in conscience? Well, we see Abel bringing the appropriate offering to God and worshiping God acceptably, while we see Cain bringing an offering that's not acceptable to bring to God. To walk in faith during the time of conscience, you would worship God acceptably, keeping Him as God alone. And, and then not only that, but then you would respond correctly to the people around you. You would love your neighbor as yourself, as we're going to be revealed later on in His Word. And that's exactly what we don't find with the failure that we see during the time of conscience is that mankind's conscience is not strong enough to make you moral. Think about it. Over the years of human history, what have normal people been able to justify to their own ends? Think about the wars and the slaughterings of people. Think of, think of the abortion industry in our own country. Mothers that don't care about their own infants within them. Lisa and I were talking about this issue as we were on a walk yesterday. And, and I, I said, you know what the saddest part is? Is that, that you actually have moms who would put their life above their child's life. And it's not even that. They're not even putting their life. On, on 99.9% of abortions, it's never the life of the mother or the life of the child. See Everett Koop, who was our, our old attorney general, he said in his whole medical career, he never saw an instance where it was choosing the life of the mother versus the life of the child. Hadn't even heard of one. So what do we pick over the life of our child? We pick convenience. We pick income. We pick, we pick that we don't want to struggle, that this is not a convenient time for me. What does it take to justify that decision? That is a human life inside the womb of that mother. 
There is no other scientific answer for what's inside that mother. But we will justify ourselves to rip it to shreds. But we'll do it in the politest of scenarios. Hitler thought he was improving the world by exterminating the Jewish race. Our own ancestors enforced other people into slavery, treating them as subhuman. Even up into the 1950s, there was extreme racial tensions and people being beaten to death. And these are by normal people that just go home and justify themselves at the end of the night. Your conscience is fed by what you feed it. Well, that's why we need a steady stream of the Word of God. It teaches our conscience. It instructs our conscience. Otherwise, the Bible says we can sear our conscience. You know what happened when, when mankind was governed just by his conscience? Violence. Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. And then the world progressively got more like Cain than it did like Abel. To where when you get toward the end and God says, you know what, uh, enough, I'm going to just destroy the world. you got one guy that's like Abel. And that's Noah and his family. And all the rest of the world is like Cain. Their hearts were only evil. Their hearts were only violent continually, the Bible said about them. So our conscience is not enough to make us good. That's what it would mean to trust God, to offer the acceptable sacrifice, to treat other people with kindness and gentleness and respect. Instead, they became more violent, more self-centered under our conscience. Well, what would trusting God mean during human government? Well, during human government, it would pretty much be the same. You're still offering the acceptable sacrifice. You're still treating people with dignity and respect. But now you have an external restraint, kind of watching over your shoulder, making sure that at least, if you're not going to treat people with respect, at least you're not killing them. And so there'd be an external restraint during that time. There was also some added, some added or, or maybe reinstated values. Remember in, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, God told Adam and Eve to fill the earth, multiply, have big families, fill up the earth. And so they did that. They had big families and they started filling up the earth. Well, now during this time after they get off the ark, God tells them to do the same thing. Go out and fill up the earth, spread out, fill it up. And they decide, no, we're really not going to do that. We're going to stick together and see what we can accomplish together. We can do anything. In fact, it says we're going to build a tower that reaches up into the heavens, which means it was probably insinuates that it was probably used for a worship of a god. This idea of reaching up into the heavens with this tower. And, it, and, and so we have the Tower of Babel. And so they're supposed to spread out and fill up the earth with God-honoring, God-glorifying people. Instead, they hold together and turn to idolatry, and they fail the test in that as well. So they don't trust that God in that either. But then you know what? You have the next dispensation, the dispensation of promise. And this is where God takes one person, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. Now think about it. Because of the Tower of Babel, the people saying, no, we're going to hold together, God intervenes. God interacts and spreads the people. He changes their language. So now all of a sudden you have people speaking German, and others speaking French, and others speaking Chinese, and Japanese, and English, and, and all these different languages. And he confuses the language, so now all the people spread out naturally. All the people that speak German start to move that way, and French start to move this way, and, and all the different languages, they get spread out all over the face of the earth. And so that spreads people out. It moves them in a natural sense that way. But then where do we find ourselves? We find ourselves in a world that's very divided. In this world that's very divided into different nations, different languages, different people groups, then what does God do? God just picks one man. 
And he elects this one man. He says, I choose you. And I'm going to make you into my people. I'm going to build your family. I'm going to give you a family. And I'm going to build your family. And I'm going to build your family into a nation. And the nation is going to be the people of God. And through this nation, I'm going to bless the world. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I'll curse. Through you, I'm going to reach the world. And so we see that in the time of the promise. So that's a, what is the responsibility to trust God? It, it changes a little bit as far as what you do, but, but the, the crux of it is all, all still the same. It's to trust God. And the judgments, the judgments that we see that come after it, the judgments are many. Of course, we have the judgment of the curse. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they're not supposed to eat, God comes and he curses them for it. He curses the serpent. He curses the ground. He curses Adam. He curses Eve. And so he pronounces all these curses, this judgment. And so that's why we have weeds today. We work by the sweat of our brow now. Instead of life was a lot smoother, a lot easier before. That's why there's pain in childbearing. That's why there's enmity between the woman, the seed of the woman, and the seed of the snake. The curse. Then there was also the flood. At the end of the time of conscience, when the world had been become so corrupt, given to, left to their own conscience, they justified about anything that they did. God finally destroyed them with the flood. And save just Noah, that preacher of righteousness. And then we also have the Tower of Babel. They tried to stick together. God confused their languages and he scattered them throughout. And so we have the Tower of Babel also. And then another one that we see is the the cities of the plains or Sodom and Gomorrah had given themselves over to such wickedness that God came through and destroyed those cities for their sin as well. Wiped them off out of that promised land area. But you know what? As we look at these dispensations and see all the failures and all the judgments, we also see deliverances, which I think is really, I think that the book of Genesis has two main purposes. I think the first purpose is to show us the desperate human condition. We've proved throughout history and within the book of Genesis that we have to have God. We can't, we can't make it without Him. Without Him stepping in and delivering us in our trials, without Him stepping into our lives, we can't make it without Him. Left to our own conscience, we've become completely violent and completely wicked, worthy to be destroyed by God. Even with human government over us, we still drift toward idolatry and, and, and we still kill one another. Making a law against not murdering doesn't solve it, Right? I mean, isn't that kind of the big gun control thing? Let's outlaw guns. Why don't we just outlaw murder? Oh, it already is. And it still happens. Even with human government, even with external restraints, mankind still violates those things. You know what it takes? It takes promise. That, I think, chapter 12, first three verses is really the hinge point, is the the central point of the book of Genesis. It takes this promise. How does promise work? It's through faith. We trust in God and we follow God and, and, and then all these other things can happen. But not until that. You know, and without faith in Christ, your conscience is not enough. Without faith in Christ, external restraints on you is not enough. It takes faith in Christ to make you what you need to be. And they're shining examples within the book of Genesis also. 
But you know what? Until we come to faith in Christ, we can't offer the acceptable sacrifice like Abel did. Until faith in Christ, we can't walk with God like Enoch did. Until faith in Christ, we won't be righteous like Noah was. It's through faith in Christ that we experience the promise that Abraham received. That's the whole point. You hit Genesis chapter 12. Everything before it points to our inability. We don't make it. We were innocent in a garden where we were completely provided for. We had everything was good. We had a good food supply, good environment, not even any thorns to step on with your bare feet. We had good relationships between Adam and Eve. We had good relationships between husband and wife. We had good relationships, mankind to God. He'd walk and talk with him every day in the garden. We had everything and we still failed. And then we had our conscience to guide us, and we failed. Then we had human government to guide us, and we fail. We fail, we fail, we fail. We need the promise. It is through faith, it is through trusting in Jesus Christ, receiving the promise of God, that we can worship Him acceptably, that we can walk with Him, that we can live in righteousness, that we can experience the promise that was received by Abraham. And we see these deliverances all through the Word of God. We're going to go through them quickly because some of them we went through when we're seeing Christ in the Old Testament or Christ in Moses. The seed of the woman is kind of where it starts out right after the fall while God is still pronouncing the curse. In fact, He's early in pronouncing the curse. He mentions that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent one day. Can you imagine then when they had, well, Adam and Eve had probably hundreds of children, but... When they had Abel, can you imagine what was in their mind? Hey, maybe this is the one. Is he going to crush the head of the serpent? But this seed of the woman that was going to crush the serpent would be the deliverance that God promised. But also the sacrifice on that same day is God took an innocent animal and took the life of that animal to use its skin to cover their guilt, to cover their shame and their nakedness before God. They were clothed in righteousness before before God, but now they're naked. And so to, to cover their sin... He sacrifices that animal, and the innocent dies for the guilty. We also see Noah's Ark. When God comes in judgment to destroy the world that is given over to corruption, He brings. He has Noah build an ark to bring deliverance to the family of Noah, to bring salvation into his experience. We also see the promise to Abraham. The promise given to Abraham that we've just been looking at. That, you know what, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to put you in your homeland. And I'm going to bless your family, turn you into a great nation, and through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. We have the rescue of Lot, as they delivered Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah before they destroyed the cities of the plains. And we also have the rescue through Joseph. God sent Joseph down by, through the betrayal of his brothers, sold into slavery. He ends up delivering the world from a famine as he manages the food supply of Egypt to provide during the time of the famine. And then also the promise, as we began, through Joseph. That as Joseph was dying on his bed, he would still look forward to everything that's happened in the past. And what's happened in the past, we started in innocence and we lost it. We tried conscience, didn't work. We failed. Tried human government. We still need it, but, but it failed. It still doesn't restrain us. The promise... And now Joseph says, you know what? God has given that promise. So I know that one day he's going to come and visit you. And he's going to take you home. Take me with you. You see, he was trusting. He was trusting in that promise. 
Well, that's what the book of Genesis records. If you look at the book of Genesis, there's a, a little Hebrew, two little words that mean in this generation. And it, the book of Genesis is kind of outlined by that little words, those two little words. Um, we find it back in Genesis chapter 2 is the first place. And verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then if you get on to chapter 5, it'll talk about this is the book of the generation of Adam. And then it'll say this is the book of the generation of Noah. And then this is the book of the generation of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it just keeps on going. And there's 11 different statements like that through the book of Genesis. But the point is, it's following the people through which God is dealing with throughout this book. And what is the experience of the people in the book of Genesis? We're hopeless without God's intervention. Our conscience won't keep us. Our restraining one another won't keep us. But number two, God is intervening. He's promised us. And that promise will be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ.